to Up the Union podcast. I'm Dan Hames and I'm speaking this week with Kyle Strobel. Kyle, you wrote an article for the Union website about the beatific vision, this doctrine that we see God now by faith and that we will see him face to face in the future. And I wanted to dig into this whole language of the, the, the visible, of seeing God. There's a worship song that uh, we sometimes sing that always makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable. It says, I see your face in every sunrise. Now, I think I know what the song's getting at about seeing something of the love and power of God in the creation. But I also think Jesus does have an, an actual real face, which I can't see. I will one day, but I can't see it now. Um, and I wonder, are we in danger of um, poeticizing that away? And yet the language of seeing God seems to be um, very complex in the scriptures. Can you shed any light on this language of seeing God for us? How should we think about this whole idea? Yeah, and this is in many ways a hard question because I do think the the language is kind of multivalent, and so there's le- there's kind of layers of meaning going on here that we have to kind of pull apart. Um, similar to the image of light in Scripture, um, light in Scripture, I, I think is pointing to several different kinds of things usually. Um, when we talk about God as light. Um, similarly, the visual and the language of God's face. I mean, in Psalm 17, um, we are told the psalmist prays, as for, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. And so there's a sense of, of kind of being in God's presence, of being, of kind of seeing God. And, and what we find, you know, in Paul at the very end of 1 Corinthians 13, after his long depiction of love in, in 1 Corinthians 13, it says, you know, for now we see through a glass darkly. And this is this a sight of faith. But then in eternity, we will see face to face. And he says, now I know in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And I think, and I think we often, that, that last phrase, we often miss the implications of. That face to face knowledge is knowing another. It's personal knowledge what's being hinted at here. And personal knowledge tells also being known by them, right? I will know fully even as I have been fully known. And so I think face-to-face knowledge denotes Christ in a unique way. Christ is, in a sense, the face of God. We have the and the Father is invisible in a real sense, and so he sends his visible representation, the image of the invisible God. And of course, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Right? So we get this um, interesting Trinitarian movement of the invisible Father saying the visible Son who sends the Spirit who illuminates Christ, that if you've seen the Christ, if you've seen Son, you've seen the Father, right? There's this kind of movement that goes on as we are illumined by the Spirit and we partake in Christ and therefore see the Father. But I think that face-to-face is Christ, but I think it's more than that, too. I think what it's denoting here, as you see in the First Corinthians passage, it's denoting a, a certain kind of presence that is intimate. It is face-to-face denotes this kind of closeness and so we are, we are pulled into this presence and we get that presence language again. It is distinctively relational. And so if you, as the Christian tradition has always recognized, knowledge of God is, is pushed into a personal. I mean, I think this is why John Calvin, when he starts the Institutes, talks about the, the, what we now call the double knowledge. Um, man has two forms of knowledge, knowledge of God, knowledge of self. You can't divorce these two because the kind of knowledge we're talking about is personal knowledge. And so, you know, the the, the image of, of seeing God's face in Scripture and the image of 
kind of glory and of light. All these images are working together to denote just simply what does it mean to know God personally. Hmm. And that means all of our knowledge of God is, is in Christ. And as Christians, by, by receiving the Spirit of Christ, we come to partake in the Son's knowledge of the Father. And I think this is clearly what's going on if you read John 14 through John 17. And Jesus is pulling believers into union and communion with himself, such that now we partake in the very relationship, the very knowledge that the Son has of the Father. And this is why, in many ways, we must come to realize who we are in Christ in order to partake in this knowledge. If we come as servants, we've missed the fact that we're children. Um, if we pray to a deity, we miss the fact that God calls us to pray to him as Father. Mm. And that adoption is pulling us into this family of God so that we may know him in the Son. When it comes to then faith, and this is where you get the distinction between what we experience now, which traditionally we would call pilgrim knowledge, versus what we'll experience in eternity, which is beatific knowledge. So in eternity, we have this face-to-face -face thing, but Paul references early, he says, but now we know in part, now we see through a glass darkly. And I think this is the reason why this can become confusing is Paul's very clear earlier, faith and sight are opposed to each other. And so when you think of the, the triad of virtues at the end of 1 Corinthians, faith, hope, and love, the reason why love is the greatest is because love is the only one that continues to eternity. Um, love is the only thing you get to take with you um, beyond the grave in a sense. Mm. Um, and because love, as we talked about already, love is the kind of economy of eternity. And so faith and hope both dissolve upon sight. If you can see something, you can neither hope for it nor have faith in it um, in the same kind of way. And so he, Paul's very clear. We have faith, not sight. But then almost every other time he talks about faith, he uses visual categories. And, and this might strike us as a bit odd. You know, if he's very if he's kind of worried to, to distinguish the two, why is he using visual language? And so what we see Paul doing is he's really pushing the notion of faith into a spiritual register. That, that faith is this spiritual knowing. It is, it is seeing things as they are, admittedly, but it's seeing them spiritually. And so for Christians, as a, an example of what this might look like, everyone can look upon the cross and say, this was horrific. Atheist, Christian, Muslim, everyone can look upon this and say, this is a horrific event. The Christian uniquely looks upon this as beautiful. But to see this as beautiful, to call you know, the crucifixion day Good Friday, right, entails yeah. a certain kind of spiritual seeing. Mm -hmm. And so when we see Paul talking about faith, it's, it's not unusual to see him pressing in to this kind of register, this kind of register of seeing him in certain kind of ways. We behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, we are told, um, in, in 2 Corinthians 4, that all the knowledge of God we have is kind of mediated through Christ so that by knowing Christ, by gaining him and seeing him as he is, then we shall be like him. And of course, that's the vision of eternity that First John gives us. Then we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. Well, we do see him as he is now. We just see him as he is through a glass darkly. It's a limited vision. And so I think this is why when we get to something like Colossians 3, Paul will kind of encourage his people, set your mind on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. For your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
setting our minds on things above, our attending, meditating, the tradition would say contemplating the things of God in Christ. And so as you're focusing on Christ, there is this formational reality going on. And it's illuminating because Christ is, is light. But it's, it, we don't illuminate Christ. And so in the article that you referenced, when I talked about eternity, one of my critiques, or sorry, well, yeah, when I talked about the tradition in relation to the beatific vision, I talked about eternity. One of my critiques of the tradition was that we got stuck into visual of a mode. Mm-hmm. So that when we start talking about eternity, suddenly it became, well, you know, we, when we're, you know, in the day we're all resurrected, we just kind of gaze upon Christ in some kind of trance-like state. And you get these really weird images of eternity. And, and then you talk to children, and children are afraid of this place. <laughs> it, no one wants to go there because it sounds terrible, right? <laughs> And then, and it sounds like one big choir practice. If you, when you read Revelation, and this, this for everyone, this sounds terrible. But it's, we need to recognize what this language is doing. And ultimately, it's the, the language of music, the language of light. It's all referencing a certain kind of harmonizing our lives with God, as Jonathan Edwards would say. We are learning a song we will sing for eternity. Hmm. He, he wasn't literally saying we're kind of learning a tune. That one day, you know, we're going to not stop saying he's talking about harmonizing a life with God. And as we see at the end of Revelation and the New Jerusalem is God's presence. God's light creates society. And so I think the focal point needs to be when we see God, we will see him as he is. But interestingly enough, that sight doesn't lead to kind of a trance like contemplative state. It leads to an intricate working culture of love. God's presence allows us to thrive as he created us to. And so that's, I think, if we set our mind there and recognize that's what faith is calling us to, that's where faith is going. I think that gives us a sense of, well, what does it mean to live faithfully now? What that's going to mean is I need to look at my my kind of church community in specific kinds of ways. I need to look at the evil in the world in certain kinds of ways. I need to recognize the structural evils of our cultures and societies in certain kinds of ways. And I think this dissolves the tension that we feel, particularly in the medieval tradition, between contemplative life and active life. There was always this tension among monks, particularly, of course, right, of, of which is kind of better. Well, it's just missing the question entirely. Because to set our minds on things above, like Paul calls us to, is to set our minds on the reality that God's presence creates an intricate working culture of love. Mm. And then to see that through a glass darkly means, how do I partake in God's life here and now, in his body, in relation to the world? And he's very clear about this. They will know you by your love. That you are living this reality out amongst yourselves in the spirit as you partake in his life as a life of love. And so ultimately that that's where I want to reorient the discussion of the beatific vision uh, away from the kind of simplistic visual language to a much broader communal reality of, of an intricate working society of love. And that, and that entails a certain kind of seeing of, of recognizing not only who you are, although, and that's going to be central, um, who God is and who you are in relation to who everyone else around you is. Mm. And, and that helps us, doesn't it? Because it, it anchors this whole idea in the the everyday Christian life. It's not a detached, trance-like vision or experience, but it's just everyday reality. Yeah, exactly. And I think this this doctrine 
this doctrine, which was so central, I mean, the reform to talk about the beatific vision more than anyone else. But when you see what happened with the doctrine, it became a very kind of esoteric musing about what it might one day look like to look at God. Hmm. And I think in Scripture we see something else going on. I mean, I think there are important questions we can ask about that. I mean, you know, the, John Owen's going to say we never see the Father, because if you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. So we'll only have Jesus representing God there. For, like, that's who we'll see. But in seeing Christ, we see the Father in a real way. Whereas Jonathan Edwards is going to say, no, our, our union with Christ is going to be so dynamic and close that we actually kind of look through Christ and see the Father in some kind of way. And part of me is like, well... I'm guessing this is going to be kind of bigger and better than we kind of can fathom. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I think what else does this help us understand? And I think some of those other issues are more central, actually, um, particularly when you read Revelation 21 and this, this beautiful depiction of this city where every tear is wiped away, where love is the, kind of, is, is the engine of this culture driving everything, where God and the Lamb, it's interesting that both are referenced, God the Almighty and the Lamb are the light of that world. And so there is some kind of partaking in a, a seeing and knowing of God and Jesus in himself, the Father and the Son, mm. that illuminates that world to such degree. And of course, in biblical language, that illumination is presumably the Spirit. And so the Spirit is kind of all infused in that world, no longer at the Genesis 1 hovering over the water, but now perfectly infused mm. so that so that everything thrives in a spiritual kind of way. We see spiritually, as Paul calls us to in 1 Corinthians, but now it's this kind of purified sight of one another, of ourselves, of God, of all these things. And so I, I think it gives us a real picture that is beautiful at the, at the end of the day, um, and it gives us something we can actually think about as we engage in, in the life of faith now. Mm. Thank you, Kyle, so much. Make sure you listen again tomorrow. I'm going to ask Kyle about Jonathan Edwards. So make sure you tune in again for Up the Union podcast.